0: Climate change stories are often doom and gloom. People become callous, and I think that's because sometimes the outcome feels inevitable and we're just destined to screw up. And people roll their eyes and tune out at the mere mention of greenhouse gases. You want to isolate somebody really fast at a dinner party? Start talking to them about carbon emissions, right? Not today. I promise this story is inspiring and motivating. Something that will make you want to take action and to think positively about what we can do about climate change. But it's not going to be easy. First, we need to count to a trillion.
1: Yes, it's time for the number of the day. Are you ready? Here we go. One. Two,
2: three. Oh, I wonder what it is. Four.
0: Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Haddock. How high can you count? Me? I lose interest at about 100. That's my cutoff. I'm not proud of it, but I'm also not ashamed. But what about a thousand? Or a million? What about a trillion? If you were to count to a trillion in one-second intervals, it would take over 31,000 years. But that doesn't mean it's impossible, right?
3: It's the company that promised to change the world. Today, it's iPhones and other products the center of life on the go. Now, Apple making history as the world's first trillion-dollar company.
0: But to count all those cannolis, that dough, juice, booty, Benjamins, bacon, C-notes, cake, hundies, G's, for money, we will do just about anything. We will make the time. The question is, are we willing to do the same thing for trees? You know, all that paper, those greenbacks, green gold, cabbage. That's the challenge my guest brings to you now.
2: My name is Sagar Aryal. Um, I'm from Nepal and currently I'm the chairman of Global Board of Plant for the Planet. I'm also working as IT manager for Plant for the Planet app.
0: What's your personal story? How how old were you when you started becoming uh, um interested in in the climate?
2: I was uh, about 10 years old um when I started a nonprofit in Nepal. It was called um Sanderson's Initiative. It's, it literally translates um small world initiative. And uh, the main idea was the little things that we do can make a big impact in the small world we live in.
0: And did you have any assistance in setting that up? I mean, that's quite an endeavor for a 10-year-old to take on.
2: Absolutely. It's, it's not easy. And when I had the idea, it was not me. My, my parents, uh, my, my, my father especially, he supported me in the beginning. And it was my colleagues, my friends from school. We, we got get together. We met in the weekends and we came up with different ideas on how we could move forward. Wow. So it was not me alone.
0: Well, no, that's huge though. Um, what kind of influence did your father have on that?
2: Uh, he was an educator who was um, living day-to-day jobs um, on environment, trying to educate different people. And I think that is also one of the inspiration for me to learn more about the climate crisis and actually to see how um, the mountains are melting and just just getting into the idea about um, climate crisis is um, real and we need to do something about it. And just learning from my father, I don't think I had... A good reason to just stay back and do nothing.
0: Do you have an earliest memory of the climate or of the concern about climate change?
2: And so Nepal, of uh, where I grew up, it's it's a mountainous country, and we have a very um, um, unique weather patterns. And sometimes it's it's difficult to see whether it's weather just weather events or it's climate. But usually, um, it's it's very abnormal um, that when there's floods and a lot of landslides, um, it's not just climate, but it's also different diseases that, that come along with it. Because um, in rural places, you don't have access to hospitals, there's floods, and then um, a lot of people die because of other diseases. So it's, I think, um, different events that were in the same time during 2007, 2008, also before in 2005, 6.
0: Can you elaborate for uh, listeners how the climate can impact things like disease?
2: Especially um, in cases of Nepal, um, when there's um, um, landslides, floods, because we have this season, uh, which is right now, uh, June, July, it's called monsoon. And if there's no rain for a long, long time, um, the season can be really deadly. And just um, in the last few weeks, a lot of people have died in Nepal and um, India just because of these floods. And especially when these floods are over, you might think, okay, there's less water means there's nothing to worry about. But then again, um, these floods carry deadly um, diseases. And when the weather all of a sudden goes from uh, rainy to to, too dry, like people start suffering from different um, airborne and waterborne diseases. And with lack of hospitals and good treatment, once what you take to be a climate event would now be a deadly um, health event.
0: I think that's kind of one of those connections that people don't really make when they talk about the climate, Um, especially in the United States. There's definitely a disconnect between the way climate change happens, what it means, um, as opposed to extreme weather events or, um, uh, say, weather patterns over an extended period of time. and, And summarizing that is what climate change is. Uh, and the disconnect it has between people of especially lower income countries or coastal lines. What, do you, what kind of what kind of words do you have for a population that, in no fault of its own, for the most part, is pretty ignorant to some of those? Uh, more nuances of climate change.
2: A lot of people who speak about climate, um, it's it's not something that you can experience just looking at a year or two. It's, it's something you have to look into patterns. Like, especially if you look into the US, it, it's a big country. There's a lot of uh, news going around. And like... Hurricanes are there once in a while, and you see, like, okay, it's here, it's in New York one one year, it's in Florida another year, and if you don't try to connect them, you don't see see how the climate is changing. But if you look at history, um, I, I think it's very easy to note that these events have been growing, and the, the magnitude and the, the amount um, of disaster it causes, the devastation it causes, it's simply increasing year year by year.
0: Uh, one of my favorite examples uh, from the United States is a senator by the name of James Inhofe, who actually went outside once and collected a snowball and brought it into the Senate floor and threw it to somebody in there saying, Look, there's snow outside. There's no such thing as climate change. When you hear things like that, what is your reaction?
2: I think it's it's amazing how people who are who who seem to call themselves educated, who seem to follow the footstep of science go on and collect the snowball and walk into the Senate floor. It's it's just amazing how, how ignor ignorant they are. Because, um, like, I went to a school where a lot of people, we discuss about things of philosophy. And to me, um, science, and especially climate, climate science, it's, it's not a thing you question. It's not a thing you believe in. It's, it's science. Like, climate crisis is science. It's, it's proven. There's, there's thousands of papers written about it. There's thousands of researches done on it. And, like, if you look at statistics, there's nothing that you can argue that it's not real. And it just surprises how people still try to go against the, the, the science.
0: As far as the when you grow, grew up, you said, you know, uh, people don't talk about it as a, a belief or an opinion about it, that it's just fact. Is there any of that kind of same conflict or is that truly an American phenomenon, do you think?
2: I think it's it's more American than it is in Nepal especially when I grew up like climate was a very new term because um a lot of people in Nepal um are not educated at least the literacy rate was about 68% so and climate was something environment and climate was something we studied in um uh, elementary school but it was not in that detail so for us it was just about yeah there's greenhouse gases and if there's a lot of greenhouse gases the earth is going to warm and it was called global warming. So it was just the idea that was um, there in a very recent development. So I don't think there were many people who were denying climate science in Nepal.
0: Sagar is global chairman of Plant for the Planets, a group that was started by a nine-year-old German boy by the name of Felix Finkbeiner back in 2007, a group that started to just want to plant trees, which may have sounded like an audacious goal, but in their third year when they planted their millionth tree people started to listen.
3: When I was nine years old, my fourth grade teacher asked me to give a presentation about the climate crisis. When I prepared this presentation, I found out about Wangari Maathai, a Kenyan who had planted 30 million trees in 30 years. And I thought that kids ought to help her. So at the end of my presentation, I told my classmates, that we should plant one million trees in each country of the world. And many of my classmates loved the idea, even though I think none of us knew how much a million was or even how many countries existed in the world. But a few days later, we went outside and planted our first tree. A local journalist reported about us, so a few other schools started planting trees as well. And one of our older brothers made a very simple website for us which was essentially just a ranking among local schools of who had planted the most trees. And lots of schools then wanted to out-compete their neighboring schools, and that's how it spread really quickly. After one year, we had planted 50,000 trees. After three years, one million. And children and youth all across the world started joining us and planting trees with us.
2: Plan for the Planet was founded by Felix. Um, he's my friend. Uh, Plan for the Planet is also a campaign that United Nations Environment Program started in 2006. Um, just for you, the background story, I joined Plan for the Planet in 2011. I met Felix um, in a conference, and then um, it inspired me that there's there are a lot of other young people around me who are trying to do equally similar amazing things. And that was one of the inspiring points when I decided to join Plant for the Planet.
0: And then how did the Trillion Tree campaign come out of that? Was that always a part of it, or was there a later uh, realization that, no, we need to make you know a specific campaign around this?
2: Uh, one of the major um, uh, stepping points uh, for starting the Trillion Tree campaign was we wanted to solve climate crisis, but um, we had the goal to plant a million trees in every country around the world, but we knew that was not enough. Um, And then um, there was a researcher from Yale University, um, Tom Crowther. He started a research on how many trees we could plant around the world.
0: The Crowther lab analyzed 80,000 photos to come up with the 0.9 billion hectares of forest that they think can be plantable. That's roughly the size of the United States. On the plus side, we don't have to plant that all in the United States. The greatest reforestation potential lies in just six countries, Russia Canada, Australia, Brazil, China, and of course the United States
2: and his research concluded that there's enough space to plant a trillion trees without actually replacing farming land and um, lands people use for housing and that was the the main point for main uh, foundation for us to say, I think we we think that we need to start a trillion tree campaign because there's there's some research that says we can plant these trillion trees in the world.
0: And we're referencing information and data that's been collected by Dr. Thomas Thomas Crowther and Dr. Jean Bestine.
1: So I got connected with Plant for the Planet a few years ago when I spoke with Felix and they were sort of wondering how many trees are there in the first place? They were aiming at planting a billion trees around the world. But we didn't know how many trees there were to start with, so we couldn't tell if that was, we couldn't tell the magnitude of these efforts. We couldn't say if that was a huge contribution or just a useful one. So we generated the first global map of forest trees around the world using satellite data and ground sourced forest inventory data so that we could understand how many trees there are in all the pixels across the world. And this revealed, in essence, that there were just over three trillion trees on Earth. So obviously, this puts the Billion Tree Campaign into context. So if if you imagine each of these little trees, it represents a billion trees in the world. The Billion Tree Campaign was going to be great, but it was going to be this, this contribution. And that's not the magnitude of the efforts that Felix and the children are aiming for. So the movement to the Trillion Tree Campaign is really going to have the magnitude of the impacts that we're hoping for to impact the climate at a global scale. But this map doesn't just show us how many trees there are. It also shows us information about the structure of the forest around the world so that we can predict which kind of animals live there and what kind of habitat it is. And it also can tell us little things about the carbon cycle so it can help us to improve those climate projections. But more importantly, it also helps us to see how many trees are lost each year. And we can see that through fire and deforestation and and disease, we're losing about 10 billion trees each year. And we can also use it to understand how many trees can be restored. So when we map
2: our our
0: forests... Three trillion trees, and the argument is that there's room for at least one trillion more, maybe as many as 1.5 trillion.
2: That's the number, yeah.
0: That is a lot of trees. I mean, a a lot of trees. Obviously, they've been looking at that for a while. They've they've used a ton of different uh, analysis models and and different research uh, techniques in order to come up with that number. Uh, but that number, um, from what it looks like, is seven times more than what NASA had previously thought. Is that, is that correct?
2: Yeah, I, I think there was always a question on how many trees there are in the world. And more um, than that question, the, the, the definition of trees was never clear. And something unique Kraft lab did um, working in this research is they defined what a tree is. So that helped them to come up with this number.
0: When someone says, "Okay, that's an audacious goal, but that's just completely unrealistic," what is what, what's your response to that?
2: I think uh, we have to look at at a very um, um, unique perspective that we're not going to plant these trees at one space. Like it's not reforesting the um, United States of America. We, because there there are many places on Earth where planting these trees is actually going to harm um, the ecosystem. So. These trees have to be planted in several areas where there's land, uh, where we are not going to displace native people or indigenous people who are using the land. And the the 0.9 billion hectares that um, the research says is... Just the potential land cover that we could use without actually affecting anything else. Based on my um, understanding, um, there are, there are different types of reforestation projects around the world. Um, there are people who are trying to do monoculture, like planting eucalyptus trees, and um, a lot of foresters do not like that simply because it's it's bad for the environment or it's bad for the ecosystem. Um, also, a lot of people don't think um, uh, tree planting is. One of the good solutions to mitigate climate crisis, um probably they are right, but also um one thing about replanting is it's not going to solve the climate crisis it's It's one ways of um capturing the c o two but that does not mean that we have to stop and we could continue um, emitting um more carbon through other means. It's, it's just just a means that allows us um, to reduce emissions while we, we move to 100 um, percent renewables. And there's always government um, a lack of government actions in that. Um, for example, the United States, I don't think the government right now is serious at all to tackle any climate issues, because when there's somebody who does not believe in climate science, the action is very little. Um, however, if we look at China, China planted about, I think, two billion trees um, in the International Day of um, Forest, year of forest in 2011, I think. And um, they are trying to reduce their uh, footprint and also trying to reforest more land. Uh, but again, Brazil, if you look at the government, it's I don't think it's a friendly government. And a lot of young people are not supportive, and the government is also not supporting supportive for climate actions.
0: What, what do you recommend then for people who are in that situation, you know, say in the United States, where there's not a lot of very explicit government assistance or support for movements like this? Wh- where should people get involved? What should they be doing? How should they be mitigating that?
2: Something um, we came up with um, when we found this challenge is we built a Plan for the Planet app, which um, basically is a marketplace for trees. What we allow is we allow um, individuals Individuals, companies, and people around the world who plant trees uh, on a single platform where they could co- communicate and plant trees in different parts of the world. Um, if there is an organization in the U.S. who are planting trees, um, or if there's an organization in South Africa or Nigeria who are planting trees, they could put their projects um Explain what kind of trees they are planting, what's the survival, what the survival rate of the trees on the land, and um, this project now would be a benchmark for many other projects around the world, where people could see and choose to donate um, based on the different um, cost ratio for trees. Maybe um, the trees in US are expensive because um, planting in US you have to pay high for labor, whereas planting in Nigeria or planting in China could be cheaper and they could, they could again use um, these um, results from different researches and find the best areas and best trees to plant in different um, spaces. Um, what we allow is we allow um, this unique um, uh, marketplace for people so that maybe if I do not have a place in New York City to plant trees, I could still plant trees in California by donating to a charity or by donating to a Project who plants trees over there.
0: I mean, if somebody's going to make a donation on the Plant for Planet app to plant trees in another part of the world, uh, how reliable is that donation?
2: One of the major challenges that we we're trying to solve in tree planting is uh, to use um, high-resolution satellite images. So, if somebody, if if a project is planting trees um, in a, a region, we want to be able to look into satellite details for several years and see whether the, the trees grew up or not, and on top, one of the challenges that we are trying to solve with the Plant for the Planet app is give transparency to these different tree planting organizations around the world so that they could sow the trees that they have planted. And we allow these organizations to do that by um, sharing high-resolution satellite images on the app so the donors could in future see the trees they have planted. So, for example, let's say a company acts in Germany wants to plant um, 100,000 trees in United States or in Nigeria, the tree planting organization now can show us where they planted the tree by simply drawing a polygon and when they planted a tree. We could stack the high resolution images from that date, maybe in an interval of um, a month, six months, and two, several years, and somebody could just look at those images and see if the trees are growing or not. And on top, we are also planning to use a normalized differential vegetation index, which um, is a standard to look how green a certain area is. And I think that gives us the estimated biomass, uh, which can increase over time based on how the trees are growing.
0: And I guess that gets cut to one of these other questions. You know, there's a concern about, uh, like you mentioned before, where, you know, there's certain areas somebody might want to plant just eucalyptus trees, right? Maybe something that has... Uh, fundamental tangible value to the economy Um, even in the uh, trillion tree campaign website you mentioned um, the opportunity to create wealth in the south Uh, what is the risk of running plantation forests uh, or afforestation um, uh, where you know you're planting a tree today but you have very very much so intended to cut it down at some point
2: I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a bad idea because one of the main reasons why trees could capture so much carbon is we need to take the carbon out from the atmosphere. And if we let the tree die at old days, the carbon is going back in the atmosphere. And I think um, the, the, the reforestation could, could also potentially create a big wood industry in, in um, Global South. And I don't think that's a bad idea at all because... Um, if if these organizations um, could then extend this wood to, to building houses, we could also take down the CO2 emissions um, that is produced while producing concrete or while building houses out of concrete and steel. So I think this is a still more um, carbon environment friendly and climate friendly than um, simply leaving the trees. But they will have to ensure that they plant more trees in return.
0: You're saying if a tree dies of old age, it will actually release more carbon back up into the atmosphere than if it were to be chopped down for um industrial purposes?
2: Yes. So th- this has to be um uh, very careful and a lot of people get it wrong and I think um a lot of people are against carbon capture stories, but I think carbon capture stories could actually help us um use the same land um because trees when trees capture carbon best when they grow up because There there are different types of trees which capture a lot of carbon in the first 10 years. And maybe from 10 to 15, the rate slows down. And 15 to 30, the rate is almost um, very little. So if we can cut down the trees when they're 15 and replant the new trees, um, now we double the amount of carbon that we can capture. So trees are the natural machine that we can use to capture the carbon.
0: Wait a second, because that's actually really badass. So we're talking about having... Basically your cake and eating it too, right? That's that's one of the arguments it's like, okay, you plant all these trees, but you're not able to actually use them because you need to just leave them out in the environment. But you're saying that there are trees that will actually capture more carbon in the first 15 years and it makes more sense to cut them down at that point and plant brand new trees. And so we would be able to use those natural resources, but also be doubling our efforts in terms of carbon sequestration.
2: Yeah, I, I I think that should be some goals, but this is not something that would be global. Maybe this would be in certain areas where this is possible. So this has to be um, done, this has to be researched well, and I think the potential is very high on this.
0: Yeah, okay, so don't go around just chopping off trees after 15 years.
2: Yeah, 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 don't go around chopping off trees after 15 years, and it's not the case with all the trees. Some trees, it takes 50 years until they grow up fully and Like uh, reforestation can capture twenty five percent or three three quarters um, of all human made CO two, but that does not mean it's going to happen overnight.
0: Right, needs some time.
2: It's it's a long term process.
0: Everybody loves trees, right? Oh
2: yeah, and I love the tree trees.
0: I mean, it's like one of those things that you plant one, and all of a sudden the the ambiance around you just becomes more exotic. Not everybody feels that way, I'm sure. You know who did hate trees? The Vikings. That's right. In fact, they hated them so much that Jeremy Richard of the French press agency says that when they traveled to Iceland 1,200 years ago, within a century, quote, settlers had cut down 97% of the original forest to serve as building material for houses and to make way for grazing pastures, end quote. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe they didn't hate trees. But this deforestation led to desertification in much of the island, even despite its incredibly green rich reputation today. However, thwarting the Vikings' best efforts, and of course I mean that in jest, Icelandic officials have committed to extensive afforestation efforts, and since 2015 have planted three to four million new trees, though most of which are not the indigenous birch that were lost. The and leaves, and Sounds like the, the trees that we have, or at least the green foliage that we have across the United, uh, the United States, excuse me, across the world, is capturing about 400 gigatons of carbon. Mm-hmm. With an addition of just 33% more trees, there's the potential to sequester another 205 gigatons, so about 50% more. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, yeah
2: I, I think that's the, the latest research, that they could store about 205 gigatons of carbon in 0.9 billion hectares.
0: Okay, so, so now I want to understand a little bit more about how those numbers actually play out in terms of sequestration. LA Times had an article, came out July 4th, with the title, Trees can reduce carbon emissions in the atmosphere to levels not seen in nearly 100 years. So when you talk about having, if we plant a trillion trees, um, I've seen something to the effect of... And I don't know where I saw this at this point, but um, something like over decades of of the tree's life, it can offset up to twenty five years of of human carbon emissions up in the atmosphere. How does that actually play out? Like, what are, what are we talking about? Um, maybe it's not so clear, and maybe you can elaborate that and, and elaborate on that in a way that people can understand the actual tangible benefits of of the trees.
2: The research that was recently published uh, says that trillion trees could capture about 25% of total human carbon emissions since, since the beginning of time. That means that the trees that we start planting today, if let's say we complete planting a trillion trees today, that would still take maybe 50 years for us to reach that point because these trees have to grow up and the trees do not grow up at the same rate in different places. And again, they depend on the sunlight that they get. Um, it's it's much better and efficient in the equator region, like Mexico, and sub-Saharan Africa. But if we're again planting the trees in North America, it's, it's not the same rate. So maybe you have to wait 30 years um, to be the same comparable time, like 15 years in Mexico.
0: I see. Okay. Okay.
2: So it's a slow process, but with the right time, um, right space and right location, it could be faster.
0: Let's just shift gears a little bit here. So um, yes, planting a lot of trees will sequester a lot of carbon, Um, something we're, you know, obviously worldwide trying to design and innovate new machinery to try to capture on an artificial level. Stepping away from that and and, and not even talking about just greenhouse gases in in general, what are some of the, the other advantages of planting more trees, of having more ground cover on Earth, what, what other benefits would come along with that?
2: The first benefit is that we actually could get to limit the rise in global temperature to 1.5 degrees, which was agreed in Paris, because these trees could actually be a bridge for the Paris ambition gap. Um, but on top, it would also um, create a new ecosystem in different parts of the world where there could be woodlands and forests. Um, It means a new life for a lot of uh, um, animals and wildlife. But on top, it's also creating millions of jobs in different parts of the world where the jobs would actually be reforestation, maybe related to wood industry. And it could create a whole lot of new um, industry building houses out of wood or even um, using wood for many other purposes. I I think the possibilities are limitless.
0: All of this has me thinking. Why aren't we planting more trees right now in our own backyard, in our own neighborhoods? Like, what are the actual obstacles in the way? So I called my town to find out. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, My name is Gregory Haddock. Um, I was calling because I've been reading some articles recently talking about the need to plant more trees and what that could do in terms of uh, carbon sequestration and and, in regards to climate change. And uh, made me think about our own neighborhood and the park next to our house and how it's a pretty big park, but there's really not very many trees in it at all. Um, I think we have maybe four or five trees, and I'm pretty sure that one of them is dead. Um, I just was curious, if we wanted to plant more trees in our park, uh, how difficult does that process look?
2: Well, actually...
3: Um... It's not. We try to do a a different park almost every year, but that would be something you would need to speak
0: to the. um, At this point, the conversation kind of developed into something like we don't have somebody in that post just yet, so it's like an administrative issue. But when I offered to volunteer some of my time, it was greeted with a lot of enthusiasm. If it's a, a shortage of man hours or something like that, I mean, sure. that's that's well, the kind of thing. Others to come and help us. Right, I'd be like, so. So, you know, more than happy to volunteer time to help plant trees too. So perfect, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh no, you're uh, welcome. Thanks for calling. Absolutely. I think it's just- what I found out is maybe it's not that simple. Maybe it's not just a, a phone call or getting on the list, and and all of a sudden trees are just planted in the backyard, but. It did show me that maybe sometimes the thing stopping us is just ourselves. And you've already hinted to this and, and talked about it, and maybe you don't have more that you'd, you'd be able to add to it. But can you elaborate on what it could do for the Global South?
2: The, one of the things um, that could start is the Global South has a lot of places where they could plant trees. And um, just by planting these trees, uh, we are adding to the eco- economy in Global South because the trees create value. A tree that you plant today in 10 years has a lot of value because it's a wood. It also has um, captured the carbon that was emitted in the atmosphere. And on top, if you replace these trees with new trees, you could use that wood as um commodity that you could um, use for building houses, you use in replace of um, uh, concrete. So it's not only adding, um, replacing the carbon from the atmosphere, but it's creating jobs at the same time and also adding value to the economy.
0: Can you discuss um, a little more around climate refugees and um, the United States? People talk dollars all the time dollars, dollars, dollars. How much is this going to cost? And the uh, European Union has seen a huge influx in, in refugees. Now, a lot of those refugees are coming from war-torn countries as opposed to climate-ravaged countries, although those two obviously have a large degree of intersectionality. Can you talk a little bit to what that means for the global refugee crisis?
2: I think often um, disasters and political instability are linked with climate because for people to leave their houses, there has to be a conflict and climate is one of them because when there is flood when there's landslide when there's disasters and you don't have anything that you could sit back and call home you don't have a choice but to leave and that's often the case for example if you look at different parts of the world where there's flood um either it's Africa it's India or it's any other parts of the world then when there's nothing that you call home, there's, the crime rate just goes up because now you have to fight to live. And it might mean stealing food. or It might mean um, using your power to do whatever you can just to leave your make your own way to living. And when you can't do that, you, you come and you ask for help and Often it's looked as if these people are coming from war-torn countries, but if we look deeply, some of these war-torn countries actually have different impacts of climate crisis. Do
0: you think that there is something inherently unsexy about talking about climate change? Does that does that question make sense?
2: Uh, I I have heard this from many young people who have started in the early age, um, um, especially colleagues of, like who are ten, fifteen years old. That if they start um, advocacy on climate change, um, they are not considered as social people. And I, I think this was the case till a few few years ago, maybe three, four years ago. When I met young people who were ten, fifteen, and they were trying to do something in the school. Uh, they were often looked as somebody who were unsocial because there were there were very few people and nobody wanted to be friends with them because they were either doing something that was not socially looked as um something people would do because children at these young ages often spend time playing or doing just things that most other children do. This was also something I I felt when I grew up because um, the, the social community was very limited because I, I was not uh, spending my time doing sports or doing something else, but I was spending time trying to learn more about what's happening in the world, what's the political status, what's the climate, and trying to do something to, to change it. And I think it had changed a lot now because we see there's a lot of young activists and young individuals who are taking a stance who are taking stance for the future because they know now that for them future means nothing if they don't act. So it's I think the new sexy, the thing that was not looked as so well five years ago, I think is it's the new sexy.
0: See I I, I think that's really inspiring. because um, I think time and time again we see historically that unless people are going to casually talk about these things on their own, or are interested, or gravitate toward them naturally? That it doesn't seem like a lot of movement happens um, in those fronts. Uh, so, so you are saying that in the last five years, you've noticed a, a a noticeable shift in the way young people look at the climate?
2: Absolutely. I think the the leadership of young people in last just one, two, three years has grown up massively around the world. And if you just look at Fridays for Future, you see how young people, and especially students, are skipping school. And this is not something you could do like five years ago. And today, um, it's actually looked as a good thing, even from parents and um, and teachers, even scientists around the world. So I, I think it has become a way of giving a message and not as a form of violence, but as a peaceful um, peaceful way to to bring into attention of leaders around the world.
0: That's awesome. Uh, Fridays for the future is that what you said? Yeah. Is that also in connection with the youth climate strikes?
2: Um, yes, Fridays for Future, um, especially the, the children around the world were inspired by Greta. Um, she was she's, this, I think, sixteen years old girl from Sweden um, who went out on school strike. Um, I think for few 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 weeks, and a lot of people followed her. I think it's amazing how children around the world have teamed up for this,
0: yeah, really, truly um and she's a just incredible person.
2: It boils down to what education is um, and what's the importance of education for these teenagers and young people in general, because we're living in a world where artificial intelligence could take over a lot of jobs. Climate change and climate crisis could uh, take away houses of millions of people around the world, and we're just left in a a chaotic world where there's no jobs, there's no good environment, and a lot of people left without houses. And if kids see that, of course, it's it's very troubling for them, and they want to act. And I don't think um, a day of schooling is more important than knowing that The world they're going to live is going to be full of chaos like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
2: I I think it's more important to know that to know the chaos than to know some mathematics or some science because they're all related.
0: As far as the Trillion Tree Campaign and Plant for the Planet, uh, what is the United Nations involvement or what does their support look like?
2: The United Nations Environment Programme handed over us the Billion Tree Campaign that was started by Wangari Maathai, who is inspiration to many of us, Um, not only Plan for the Planet, but a lot of people who are involved in reforestation and the entire continent of Africa, where she came from. Um, Right now, the United Nations Environment Programme is um, helping us. in different ways, connecting us with partners, connecting us with different organizations in the world, um, so that we could take this as a global commons means to involve everyone. And that's also one of the reasons why the Trillion Tree Campaign is a non-profit initiative. We take no commissions from any donations that is made to any tree planting projects around the world. That means any organization or if you have a planting project in some part of the world, you could choose to receive commission-free donations from the app. It's, it's a global commons and open source um, tool for everybody.
0: And what about the work that Dr. Crowther and his associates um, are working on? What kind of connection or relationship do you have with, with their research or their um, offices?
2: Dr. Krauser is the scientific advisor for Plant for the Planet. Anything we need help in terms of scientific development, we, we reach out to him and um, the, the team is always the team is always helpful in helping us find these challenges and find solutions to them.
0: When you were younger, you said you had a lot of support from your father and obviously encouraged you very much to to pursue some of these passions that you had. Um, you also talked about, um, you know, your home country uh, having tons of issues with natural disasters caused by climate. Is there a specific story that you can think of or a moment that had a personal effect on you on an emotional level?
2: Um, I grew up in Nepal where in the early um, 2005, six, I, I came to uh, read a story about a news article on how Mount Everest, one of the tallest mountains in the world, was going to lose um, its snow to the climate crisis. Uh, for me, that was uh, one of the um, emotional points because what I had learned my, in my school and from colleagues, from family, was a lot of people in the southern part of Nepal and India depend on these mountains for fresh water, for for um, uh, for clean air and for a lot of other things that this water that goes downhill provides to the ecosystem. And just knowing that a change in um, climate uh, or the rise in temperature is going to create massive floods that could take lives of thousands, even millions of people living, living in these foothills, which actually happened a few years later, um, where there was a massive flood in the southern part of Nepal and a lot of people lost their lives. I, I, I think these events, like when we look, look back at them, it feels like we, we failed to do a lot, even knowing that we knew these events were going to be there. I, I think these events, even though they're sad, are very inspiring to, to do more and to act so that they don't repeat in future.
0: What is the best way for people to take action?
2: To look into the future and to do something that you can, even if you don't have a lot of other means, to educate people about climate crisis, to to go out and do a simple thing like planting trees. Maybe we don't have the capacity to install a solar panel in our house because it's expensive, but something we could do is we could plant a tree in our garden take care of it so it grows and it captures some carbon.
0: If people want to reach you or contact you by email or um, visit the website, uh, what are some places that you'd like to send people?
2: You could email me at uh, my first name at lastname.me, uh, Sagar at me. Uh, you could also visit uh, Plant for the Planet. Um, you could search Plant for the Planet, plant-for-the-planet.org. hyphen hyphen you could, you could download our uh, Plant for the Planet app, which is currently available in beta. Um, just go to App Store or Play Store and search uh, Plant for the Planet or Trillion Tree Campaign. And you could uh, create your own personal tree counter. You could create uh, competitions. Um, If you're a student, you could create competitions in your school and invite more friends, uh, colleagues, parents, and teachers to join and plant more trees. Um, If you have capacity to plant trees in different parts of the world, you could choose from different projects and plant trees over there. And you could also create your beautiful tree counter, which shows your target and your progress of planting trees around the world.
0: That's very cool. I want you to know that I I set a target of five trees for myself, and I've planted one.
2: That's amazing. Thanks. You're you're almost there.
0: I'm almost there. I'm just edging in on it already. Absolutely. Cigar, is there anything else that you would like to impart onto listeners or people who think like, oh, that's nice, or aren't ready to take action? Uh, People who might be listening from home or, uh, you know, on their way to work um, and think, you know, that's a nice thought. Uh, I don't have time for that.
2: We talked about planting a trillion trees several times um, uh, in this podcast. And I think um, when, although the amount trillion sounds a lot, it's actually not that much. Because if everybody in this world plants 150 trees this year, we'll be done with the target. We'll have a trillion trees next year. So it's not that much. We just have to do something. And hundred and fifty is not a big number. So the question is when are you going to plant these hundred and fifty trees? It's it's a global community where it's a small world and we're all connected.
0: Cigar Ariel, thank you so much for joining me on the Eyes on Conservation Podcast. I really, really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you very much, Craig. It was it was a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. Thank you.
0: So far, I've planted one tree. But soon, it will be two, three, four, five. You know know what? I'll just call you when I'm done. And hopefully that's going to be a lot sooner than 30,000 years. Thanks for listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Special thanks to my guest, Cigar Arial. Check out the Plant for the Planet app, available on nearly any smartphone, and visit the TrilliontreeCampaign.org to check out Planet Earth's collective global progress and set your own goals and challenge any group or individual to plant their own trees. EOC is a production of the Wildlands Collective. Check out Wildlands' newest collaboration, Sea of Shadows, a film distributed by National Geographic, directed by Richard Lacani of The Ivory Game, with executive producer Leonardo DiCaprio, and co-directed by Wild Lens' very own Sean Bogle and Matthew Podolsky, winner of the Sundance Film Festival Audience Award and nominee for Best Documentary. Just wow, guys. Really. Congratulations. If you want to support EOC, consider making a donation to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash wildlenscollective. At as little as a dollar an episode, Your donation makes episodes like this one possible, and it expands the work that we can do as a group. We thank you so much for your contribution and support. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions.